Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Dr. Woodley is a Kitoa Cherokee Distinguished Professor of Faith and Culture at Portland Seminary, where he is also Director of Intercultural and Indigenous Studies. He's also married to an amazing woman with silver hair, just like me. <laughs> Randy has authored a number of books uh, with which we hope you will make yourselves familiar. Uh, Randy is a pastor, an mm -hmm. activist, a farmer, and a movement builder. Uh, he's <clears throat> Uh, someone who's working for change of both church and society. Randy, uh, a very, very warm welcome to you, and perhaps there's um, a way that you'd uh, like to introduce yourself. Oh, thank you for that opportunity. Um, well, I think I, I just want to make an opening statement, and that is that uh, it is rather ironic that I'm on the, uh, the last uh, of your webinars, and, um, you know, we, we have the uh, last of the Mohicans and the end of the trail and Ishii the last of his tribe and so it's probably appropriate to bring a Native American on to close this thing out. So. Yeah. All right Ishii go for it. <laughs> yeah so I, I'm, I'm uh, just open to your questions and we'll we'll talk about what you want to talk about. That's, uh, that's good. Thank you for having me though. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of your world. Um, we have a lot of mutual friends, and they all keep saying, you know, you guys got to get together with uh, Chad and Elaine, and, and we never have. And so uh, at some point, we need to do that. So, All right. Well, well, let's start, uh, let's start with, your, uh, with your lived context. Um, tell us uh, a little bit about Iluhe Farm, uh, <clears throat> if I didn't butcher that pronunciation, uh, which is where you and Edith... Uh, do your work. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, Edith and I uh, have been in ministry together. I like to say service now. It's got a little bit better uh, ring to it these days. Uh, have been in service mm -hmm. to our fellow uh, human beings um, together since uh, she married into it in 1989. Um, I've been in uh, doing things a little longer, but it was only uh, in Kentucky in 1984, I'm sorry, 2004, that we really started a farm, uh, Elohe Farm. Mm -hmm. And Elohe is uh, that one of those kind of uh, universal words uh, in our uh, Kitua language. It means um, the, what basically the old biblical construct of shalom is, this not at war, everybody's fed, the land's producing everything it should, and all that sort of thing. And so, so Elahe is that place of harmony. And uh, we started our, our farm on 50 acres in Kentucky, and uh, then moved from there in 19, uh, I'm sorry, I keep going back to the 19th, so I'm sorry, in uh, 2008, and came to Oregon, and then we took us about uh, five years to sort of get financially reconstructed and, and then we were able to finally purchase a, a, a little three and three quarter acre farm um, in uh, mm -hmm. Kentucky where we've um, developed it. It's a lot of permaculture principles, um, biomimicry, traditional indigenous knowledge, and um, 
we have our own seed company that uh, it's a nonprofit farm, so everything goes back into the farm. So, so and we've been experimenting with a lot of different native varieties for a while. So it's a lot of fun and a lot of work. Mm. Yeah, we we know that. Um, a picture of a sweat lodge here. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about how you welcome people onto Eli Farm uh, and the kind of spiritual practices that you're nurturing there? Yeah, these are. Uh, photos are some of our community members. Um, we have a, um, uh, I always say that we're part of an unintentional community. Um, <laughs> very disorganized and um, a happenstance. But uh, we, we meet once a month and we have our sweat lodges um, in the wintertime when it's really rainy. Uh, we have talking circles and um, uh, people come everybody's welcome anybody who wants to come comes and uh, we have other events that go on we had a Claire Hitchens concert and work day last week um, uh, Seth uh, Martin a friend of mine uh, comes every now and then and we have concerts and we do things together um, and our sweat I've been running sweat for 27 years um, and this year actually uh, speaking of the last of so um, in uh, August was my last public sweat as a sweat leader, and I passed it down to my two sons, um, my grandson's father, and um, my nephew, the Navajo guy in the picture standing next to my wife there in the center. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, there's a time for doing things, and there's a time for passing them down to, uh, to others to, to learn and to take up this life. So. So um, it was a commemoration of 27 years of, uh, of leading that ceremony. It was good. Mm, wonderful. When we first uh, were talking, Randy, um, before all the participants came on, um, you mentioned um, the farm in Kentucky and some of the issues uh, that arose there. Can you tell us a little bit about how that all happened? Yeah, so we love Oregon. I mean, for us, Oregon just fits us perfect. We're just, we're, you know, we're planning on staying there forever. And, um, but uh, we didn't come there voluntarily in, in every sense of the word. We, we were forced out of Kentucky. Um, so we had a 50-acre farm and a community, um, as I was saying, kind of a, uh, uh, trying to create a, uh, a sort of a native uh, ministry school a combination between Francis and Edith Schaefer's Labrie, where you come and you work and you go to school, and uh, and then we have periodic schools, and also the Highlander School, um, Miles Horton's place up there, for um, you know helping to uh, mobilize uh, activism and community um, development and those kinds of things. And so um, it was it was being very successful. We were every school we had, we were having 40 to 50 people come in from all over the United States and Canada. Um, about half of those mm -hmm. were Native Americans, about half were non-Native, and of the non-Native half, about uh, uh, a quarter of the total or half of them were people who were in ministry among Native Americans. So we felt like we were having quite an effect in the Native world, um, which needed some uh, change. And um, uh, it, uh, we ended up running into, after, we had about a dozen people living in our community. We had a couple elders who were were there and basically um, uh, were, were able to speak into everyone's life there, uh, and they were there most of the time. Um, but eventually, we ran into problems with the uh, 
the city or the um, community uh, county commission and um, county planning, I guess that's what it was, and the our neighbors and uh, they uh, showed up at a, a final approval of some of our community buildings because we were we were in sleeping buildings. We were trying to find more places for people to sleep, and yeah. um, a neighbor showed up in protest. About forty of them and said these terrible things about us and Native Americans and and uh, basically the county denied our permits and then the next day one of those neighbors was uh, hosted a paramilitary uh, white supremacist group and they set up a 50 caliber machine gun on our property line and commenced to fire that daily. Uh, first we thought they were shooting at us then the sheriff we called the sheriff the sheriff saw oh, they're firing on their property line but they're set up right on our property line right and we were concerned wow. that, um, that the, you know, there's a lot of rocks around and things. We were concerned someone was going to get killed and our livestock would be killed. And, and um, uh, so uh, we spent about three weeks sort of in trepidation trying to figure out what to do. And I had taken on um, counties and cities before. I'd taken on the good old boy network of sort of uh, the um, uh, the sort of the more of the citizens council, white supremacist uh, type folk. And, uh, but, but this, I just felt like I didn't want to take a chance um, with uh, one of us getting killed, one of my children getting killed. With 50 calibers, a big bullet. And so we finally, after three weeks, we put up a for sale sign and everything that we had built on our schools. And uh, they stopped the firing. Um, it took us two years to sell. It was in the bottom of the economic downturn, and we ended up getting yeah. half of what the property was worth, half of the appraised value, and got just enough to get out of debt and move to Oregon. And then it took us about, uh, I think we were sort of underemployed for about five years until we finally could buy this um, rundown, beaten up. It had been 20 years since it was a farm fixer-upper. And we've been working on that now for six years, and it's finally starting to get to the place where we're we're pretty happy about uh, how things are going. Yeah. That's kind of our. Well, I guess that's how you become a professor at uh, in Portland, Oregon. I don't. Know. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and there's uh, we've got one of our uh, viewers uh, tonight is from uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Jeremy. He's mm. visited. Uh, LOA and is uh, shouting out to you there, uh, but that's that's uh, that's an amazing story. So let's let's go deeper um, back into history for a minute, um, and let me ask you. <clears throat> uh, obviously, you remember uh, the '92 Columbus Quincentenary. I'm I'm curious in your own journey um, whether that was a any kind of a significant event for you. What you were doing during that time. Um, uh, what your thoughts were as as you remember back in 1992? Yeah, I, I, d I definitely do. Um, I, I wish I could say I was doing more. I was wearing t-shirts, protest t-shirts <laughs> at that time, <laughs> and bumper stickers. Um, I I, I want to go back to maybe to uh, 1982. Uh, well, maybe maybe 19, a little farther, right? 1973 at the Wounded Knee um, uh, occupation. Um, that was when I sort of got radicalized, and um, uh, then uh, in 1975, 
I uh, became a follower of Jesus. Um, and what I was told at that time by people who loved me dearly and who I love was to don't worry about all that ending stuff. Just do what we're doing, you know, just do, do like us. And, and so I had uh, some wilderness years. And uh, in 1984, now 10 years before the quincentennial, um, I went to Alaska as a missionary among uh, uh, native Alaskans and uh, Aleuts and others. And um, for two years, and I call those my missionary oppressor years, um, I, I figured out at that point, I came to a crisis of faith and figured out that, uh, that um, uh, I was oppressing uh, these native kids in the same way that my ancestors were oppressed by missionaries. And so I, I decided at that point um, to go to seminary. And I drove 5,000 miles from Kodiak, Alaska to uh, um, Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, now called Palmer, um, where I had some great uh, instruction and, and, and a great community with folks like Ron Sider and Tony Campolo and Samuel Escobar and Monford Brock, just wonderful, wonderful people, and uh, had some, some great, everything I did there was, was to answer the question, how do I live uh, as a follower of Jesus and express my faith among my native people without being an oppressor. And at the end of that time, I, I, I felt like I found that. I hit the ground with my feet running. I was the, uh, uh, became the coordinator in, with the American Baptists at that time. I was ordained with the American Baptists of the uh, Oklahoma Indian American Baptist churches, 10 native churches. And um, I ran a, a community center in a a very poor neighborhood, literally just on the other side of the tracks. Anadarko is called Indian Capital of the Nation. There are 17 tribes within a 40-mile radius, and uh, that's where I got my baptism, and uh, um, and that's where uh, I also ran into all my first brick walls, both in the missionized churches and in the um, communities of good old boys who did not want to see change in their communities. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that was, takes me into, that was in 1989, and I was there um, to 1992. Um, at that point, we were, we had started a group called Christians for Justice and took on the county sheriff, we took on the city the council, we took on the county. Uh, Anadarko at that time was 58% people of color and only 3% in the workforce. So uh, we had a big job ahead of us. Um, we had a, 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 the National Council of Churches come down and, and do a uh, story uh, video, and they showed things like the Redskin Theater, um, Step and Fetch It com um, convenience store, which is right outside the black community, um, and, uh, and, and just sort of it revealed what was really going on there. Um, at that point, we began to get a lot of death threats, uh, people following us home uh, with their lights off on our tails in their cars. Uh, and I, at the same time, a uh, person who was trying to get me to become a dean of students at the Indian College in Muskogee, Bacon Indian College. And, and, um, and that was right around the Columbus uh, uh, Quincentennial. Um, at that point, uh, I was going through a lot of persecution myself and uh, doing, holding things like uh, um, 
um, controversial um, seminars and things that would get people yelling and screaming and walking out and you know and this was all about whether we could practice our culture within a church context you know um, and at the same time we had these um, doing a lot in the community we had things going for unwed mothers um, baby uh, cl uh, clothes closet we had uh, um, language classes after school tutoring basketball leagues we had um, uh, yeah all these different kinds of things sweat lodge hosting powwows, holding Indian youth camps. So we were pretty active during that time um, trying to be indigenous. And um, uh, I think, uh, uh, so it, it sort of uh, skipped over, but immediately afterwards, I don't know if you guys ever seen the video, Columbus Didn't Discover Us, that came out uh, right mm -hmm. afterwards. So I've shown that in my classes and to groups, you know, ever since that came out. And um, sort of uh, uh, wish I could have uh, been more socially aware at the time, but um, but I was active uh, standing up for indigenous rights as I as we always have been since since we've been in service. So yeah, mm -hmm. well, it sounds like you had your hands full. Let, let me just pause there and <clears throat> um, go back a little further. Uh, your Cherokee roots. Um, are North Carolina or Oklahoma or a bit of both or a third, a third uh, provenance? Th third, the, the third way. So, um, okay. Uh, all my well, uh, all my ancestors on my mother's side, both of my parents are mixed blood Cherokees. Um, I'm a uh, uh, listed only as three sixteenths blood quantum, and I hate to even bling it bring up blood quantum because it's a divide, colonial device, right? But um, uh, so in my yeah. tribe, the United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians, you have to be one quarter. So I just miss it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm considered what's called a legal descendant of the United Ketua Band. Um, my wife is actually a member of the Eastern Shoshone. She's a member raised on a reservation, but, but, um, um, but I'm an almost. And um, uh, sometimes that creates a powerful motivation to to get things done. But uh, um, and so most of my ancestors, not all, but I don't know of all of them. But most of my ancestors are what we call old settlers, and they were people who came out between generally um, my my uh, third great grandfather signed the first peace treaty uh, with the United States at a place called White's Fort um, in uh, what is now um, Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, that was the Treaty of 1791 after a 19-year war against him and and other chiefs and others. He was one of 41 chiefs who signed that. Um, the Chickamaugan War, which is something people should look up because they keep claiming the Afghanistan War is the oldest war in the United States history and the Chickamaugan War was 19 years. So, um, so after that and you know, we don't have time to go into all the details of that war, but um, they they signed the peace treaty. Um, my grandfather was moved five different times um, from different places after he said he could be they could be somewhere else. Finally, he moved out in uh, 1817, signed the uh, Treaty of the Western Cherokee out in uh, where where the old settlers were, and basically anybody who came in the early 1800s to 1835 is considered what we call an old settler or Western Cherokee at that time. Um, later, the treaty party came, 
And then finally, the National Party, which was the Trail of Tears. And they had three governments, and they had to solve those problems. Um, and so um, a lot of the uh, Katuas are old settlers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. And, you know, for our <clears throat> uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the politics of um, bloodlines in Native America, uh, you, you just alluded to that very briefly, but, uh, you know, a lot of folks don't realize the way that the government plays that. Um, maybe you could just say a word about the, the politics of, uh, uh, of bloodlines. Yeah, by and large, the, um, the, what was dictated to uh, most of the tribes were that you had to be a certain blood quantum. Um, and usually, it, it now it stands at a quarter for most tribes. Um, there are also requirements that you be on certain roles, that you have ancestors on certain roles. All of these are sort of made-up devices that will eventually um, uh, uh, create the, the end, the extinction of Native people. Uh, and so it's a colonial tool. Um, we use it because we're full of, as Native people, a lot of us, and especially our tribal governments, are full of this colonial pattern and self-hatred. Um, it's hard to see, um, but they've been taught to do BIA politics, Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, BIA. We kind of say it, BIA stands for Boss Indians Around. But um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, sort of taught them how to, uh, the bureaucracy involved, and, uh, and so they, they stay in that pattern. They're much like a lot of our churches. Um, you know, we get stuck in that uh, colonial pattern and can't seem to find our way out. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great analogy, and, and I think a very um, very true one. So so that brings us back now yeah. to pick up the the thread of, of your story. Um, so the the quincentenary, you're you're doing a lot of ministry um, over the last twenty five years. Um, obviously, you've been on a journey. You've plugged into the, the various kinds of uh, native activism that have have been flourishing uh, in various parts of North America over the last 25 years. What, what, um, what parts of the movement have you uh, resonated with most? Uh, any particular uh, influences that you want to name in your own work? <clears throat> yeah, so, so I'm a, a more or less a, a teacher, a writer, a speaker, and an influencer. And so I've spent a lot of time with people um, making uh, roads of influence. Um, so there's a number of, of folks who have influenced me. Um, I would say number one has been uh, the elder uh, John Mohawk. Um, John uh, was a, a Seneca leader, uh, well-known, um, part of UNDRIP in its early days. Um, he used to publish the Aquasasne notes. I used to receive that when I was in high school. Uh, it was sort of our great own. stuff. Yeah. I remember that very yeah. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talking about decolonizing, talking about farming, talking about you know food uh, sovereignty and all these kinds of things. And I just found him to be a genius. Unfortunately, I never got to meet him, but uh, have read mm -hmm. everything and saw every video I can. And I, I have appreciated uh, John Mohawk more than uh, anyone else in terms of their influence uh, in my thinking and my life, and so uh, I want to give him credit for that. I've had other elders along the way. I've been really fortunate um, to um, 
to be exposed to uh, early on to a lot of elders who um, were what I call the old elders, um, who took the time to listen, who were pretty non-judgmental, who um, um, most of them, um, their, their parents were born in teepees. They, they're sort of the first generation out of the teepees type, uh, at least for those Plains people. Um, and had other elders in my life who, who um, I was able to, to listen to and learn from. Um, so I've been real fortunate. Um, and uh, they are, our elders are the repository of knowledge. Um, and so the, that's who, who I would say I'd look to. I've, of course, we were uh, proponents of uh, Standing Rock, but we couldn't, uh, we've been fairly poor for a number of years and weren't able to get out there. And then um, when we could, we didn't have the time. So, uh, but we uh, wrote a lot and blogged a lot and Facebooked a lot. I just turned my Facebook page into a blog. I got tired of doing blogs. And uh, if you want to know what I think, you just go through my, my Facebook page. Um, and uh, writing articles on the doctrine of discovery and speaking about the doctrine of discovery and you know, all of those kinds of things that, that I get the opportunity to do. I'm currently, uh, this morning, I was writing a, another article for, I think, the Covenant Church. I wrote a couple for the Mennonites, the Canadian Mennonites, and, and so um, spoke to the Presbyterians. I, I, I'm somebody who um, will basically go wherever people will listen, so I'm not partial. <laughs> Can you also talk about um, UNDRIP? and how that uh, influenced you and the work you're doing and the directions it pulled you in. Yeah, that's a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of meetings and a lot of things that I would never have the patience to do, but I'm sure glad that there are others who would sit down and have those committees. And I'm about, uh, I have about as much patience for bureaucracy as I do sitting in a room full of mosquitoes. So um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that the, the the work of UNDRIP and, and what they've accomplished, and now um, basically the word just needs to get out um, so people understand what, what it's about. And I, I think we're totally undereducated on things like that. Um, I, even Standing Rock, I mean, Standing Rock for so long, it was just, you know, a few of us, you know, watching through people like, uh, you know, Amy Goodman and others, Democracy Now!, and and a few uh, other folks who showed up and bothered to say something about it. I think Lawrence O'Donnell and MSNBC and a couple others. But but it wasn't until uh, they let the dogs out and uh, uh, the uh, security firm um, sort of stepped over the line before it started getting any publicity whatsoever. So so it's never a um, a surprise to us that people don't know what's going on. We're used to that. We're you know, people call Native Americans the invisible uh, minority. Um, and uh, so uh, there's a wonderful pamphlet uh, uh, or study that was done here in Portland. Portland's actually the 11th largest Native community in the United States. And so it's quite active. Um, we, uh, my son was active as a, a youth speaker and uh, others at NAYA, Native American Youth and Family Center. In Multnomah County, which is the bulk of where most of the natives live, um, also uh, voted to, uh, we all showed up in our regalia, and, and my son got to speak. I was very proud of him. Um, 
uh, about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, and they, they uh, turned Columbus Day mm -hmm. into Indigenous Peoples Day as well. Um, but uh, they, they have this uh, brochure that they put out, and the, the title of it is called Making the Invisible Visible. And so I think that's sort of the error, or era, not era, the era that we are in is to uh, let people know what Native people have been going through. Um, none of this stuff is new to us. It's just new to everybody else. Well, and that and that makes me think about the uh, you know the Canadian. I am from Canada. The <coughs> big uh, Canadian Truth National Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, feels like Canadians cannot claim to not know uh, the history, at least of Indi Ind Indian residential schools in Canada. Yet, I mean, there is still so much ignorance. Do you see any um, bubblings of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission here uh, in the United States uh, around issues that of, of Indigenous history? So I'm appreciative of Canada's attempt uh, with the TNR to um, bring these things to light. But, and I can't remember the judge's name who spoke uh, at one point. Um, Murray Sinclair, yeah. maybe the the commission head. Yeah, yeah. and and I listened to Murray Sinclair say, um, "We're not quite at truth, and this isn't reconciliation. Um, right. we, we were never consiled to begin with." And so, um, I I think the concept is uh, still a little bit weak. I'm not sure a, a truth in, and in South Africa it happened, but yet, what happened as a result? You know, education. That's good, but I, I think we need more than education, and um, and so I'm not sure the TNR is a is the model I would like to see happen here. So um, mm -hmm. I I think what we need is some more active steps. I I, I, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. We could start with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but I think it has to lead to something more for it to mean anything. Um, uh, uh, People in the United States are so uh, abstract and sort of um, dualistic in terms of how they understand knowledge and what they do with it. They think that they know something, that they've lived it, um, as opposed to actually living out what they know. And I think that that's the problem. Um, it's the problem in the church. It's the problem just in with the citizenry. And... Um, just because you know of something doesn't mean you really know it. You don't know it until you live it out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to ask, and I know we're getting close to time. I'd love to hear um, about Nate's uh, and how that all got started and, uh, and your work there. Yeah, so um, <laughs> funny you should ask. Uh, so we started um, in. Uh, there's a, there's a alum, alumnus on the call uh, on the webinar today. Oh, yeah. jo Josh, Josh Grace Dave. is listening in from Philadelphia. Yeah, Joshua. Yeah, hey Joshua. Um, I'm. Uh, uh, he, he's just one of my favorite people altogether. Um, Ours so too. We've had some, oh, okay, good. We've we've had some incredible students. I see Mickey Jones there, one of our graduates. Um, 
Joshua's a graduate. We've got some incredible people who I believe are just um, world changers uh, in their locales um, and, and in their sphere of influence. Um, so I'm very pleased with the people who have come through this Master of Arts Intercultural Studies program. Um, so uh, we started by the four of us, um, Richard Twist, myself, Terry LeBlanc, and Ray Aldred, attending Asbury Seminary. They had offered us scholarships. They wanted to get in on what we were doing. And the idea was to turn our knowledge into um, a... Uh, a sort of a program that uh, others could follow without jumping through the hoops or as we like to call it hegemonic bullshit. So um, we uh, uh, we learned that word in seminary uh, the first <laughs> <laughs> So um, uh, and Asbury sort of uh, fell apart. Uh, we tried to get a, a Sioux Falls uh, seminary to pick it up and uh, they kind of bit for a while and then stopped. And, and then finally I was um, given an opportunity to do some adjunct work at uh, George Fox Seminary at that time. Now it's called Portland Seminary. But, um, and so I began to talk to them about um, hosting um, our Master of Arts Intercultural Studies that, that we had drawn up and uh, to make that dream a reality. And so we finally got uh, some, uh, you know, white paper going and got some signatures and started the program. I was the program director and uh, we've had that going for a number of years. I think we've got probably uh, about 15, 16 graduates right now. Um, and I just this year resigned as the uh, director uh, of the uh, program and um, uh, as the, uh, uh, basically as a, as a professor there. So uh, I'm still teaching at Portland Seminary, but I'm just no longer doing the Nates program. Well, we, we know from several friends uh, how powerful that uh, experiment has been, and as people who ourselves are involved in, in experimental theological education, we, we so deeply appreciate the way in which uh, you all have uh, um, yeah, pushed out the boundaries of what is possible. Um, and uh, and that brings us to our final. Yeah, well, I just want to say that it's really the great students that make it a great program. It really is. I, I give a lot of credit to them. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Um, before you uh, have to go off and, and do your legitimate teaching, um, I do want you to speak a little bit about this most recent uh, engagement. I understand that you were one of the authors of this declaration in, uh, in the wake of Charlottesville. Um, what what can you uh, tell us about this, uh, and what are you? How are you hoping that people on this webinar might help uh, spread this this movement? Yeah, so I'm very proud of this. I I think um, uh, it was drafted originally by uh, started with Trey Lyons, and then a number of uh, four or five other folks sort of uh, contributed, and they all happened to be white. And then all of a sudden, um, they said, you know, we can't be the guardians of this thing, and so so they they asked. Um, uh, they brought in a number of us uh, of uh, folk of color who are activists, um, uh, uh, people who have influence in educators and others, academics. And, and uh, I think there were maybe eight or nine of us or, um, and just heavily edited that document for and uh, uh, drafted and edited it for uh, about um, three, close to three weeks maybe. 
um, before it was released last Tuesday. Um, we uh, ended up with, uh, I think in three days, we ended up with 1,500 signatures of uh, leaders all over. I'm not sure where it's at now, um, but what we would love is if people would go there, uh, send that link, post it on Facebook, um, and especially don't neglect to look at the call to action there. We have one of the, on the website, you'll see one that says action. That's the most important part. And, and, and in answer, Elaine, to your um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission question, I would say that those four things are the most important things that would have to be done with Native people or uh, in anything else. And so, so we took some time and said, what are four very practical things that people can do to really grasp uh, a change in this, and so um, and, and they were basically um, to listen, and we're suggesting things like listening conferences, national, local, regional, um, uh, to lament, to repent, uh, to do the opposite direction, and to um, reimagine um, a new uh, a sort of beginning, reimagine whiteness in America, and what that would mean without uh, as a colonizing force and oppressing force, and. And so, um, so there's a number of really practical steps there, as well as the undergirding theological work. So we really want want the word to get out. Um, we want to we want to see this implemented. So we do want to ask everybody on this uh, webinar tonight to go to this site and take a look at the uh, at the declaration. Uh, it's long. It's substantive. Uh, read it thoughtfully and carefully, and sign on as Elaine and I have. Um, and uh, this is one of uh, several current events in uh, faith-based circles um, in response to Charlottesville, but uh, it's an important one. And mm. as soon as we found out that Randy was uh, on this train, we uh, hopped right on because we have so much uh, love and respect, Randy, for your, your work over the years, uh, your journey, uh, and the way that it's continuing, the way that you are incarnating uh, your holistic faith and uh, witness to the gospel and to humanity uh, there at LOA. Uh, and we're, we're just so grateful that you were able to take time out of your uh, schedule to uh, join us on this webinar. I want to just uh, uh, turn it back to you. I know you got to uh, get ready for class, but anything you want to say by way of uh, closing out your comments or benediction or anything else? Yeah. I would just say that um, I think I'm glad you ended with a theological declaration because this really would create a sea change in the way things are done in the church, at least. And um, and I, I think, you know, it's about time the church got out ahead of stuff rather than sort of back behind and reacted to. So so this would mean something. Um, take and uh, use that declaration in your courses, use it in your churches, use it in your Sunday school and talk about this because it will expose a lot of things. Um, that people probably haven't given a whole lot of thought to. And, uh, and so I, I really want people to, I just really want to push that as something extremely important right now. And thank you guys. Uh, thank you, Elaine and Chad, for having me on. It's an honor to, to be in your space for just a little bit. And uh, um, I hope that uh, this won't be the last time that uh, we're able to get together and maybe in person next time. So thank you. Yes. Open. Yeah, thanks, thanks so, much, so Randy. much, Randy. Many okay. blessings to you, brother. Thank you. Blessings to you. Bye bye. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, 
please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.